0: According to Conservation International, the concentration of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere as of 2018 is the highest it has been in 3 million years. But recent satellite images from NASA have shown a significant reduction in our carbon emissions and polluting activity since the outbreak of the coronavirus. Are these effects
1: sustainable or are they merely temporary? We speak with Dr. Christopher Jones, a lead developer at the Cool Climate Network an environmental policy expert to deconstruct a long-term impact in our environment?
2: Honestly, it's restored my faith in humanity a lot, frankly. Um, seeing people make all of these sacrifices, seeing governments shut down for the sake of saving lives, for the common good, um, that people can come together to anticipate this big problem, and, and listen to science, and take these very drastic measures. I would never have thought that was possible. I mean, economics tells you that people are not willing to make sacrifices for the common good, right? So, and here's like the whole country, the whole world is doing it.
0: My name is Jenny didari And I'm Caroline Kovanovsky. And this is The Utopian.
1: We set sail on this new sea
2: because there
0: What exactly is Cool Climate? What kind of work are you doing with them?
2: Yeah, so I direct this program called Cool Climate Network at UC Berkeley. It's a research consortium, and so we have uh, universities and non governmental organizations, businesses uh, that um, collectively um, pool our resources together. To do research and software and programs uh, on carbon footprint analysis and opportunities to reduce carbon footprints. So for individuals and and, and households, but also businesses and organizations and uh, community scale and policy. It's really important for all of us because we have all of these different spheres of influence. You know, in our peer groups and our place of work and in public policy. And our work on all those. Uh, aspects of our influence on on greenhouse gas emissions. So uh, we work uh, to develop like carbon footprint calculators. That's what we're most known for. So you go on and and put in your location and your household size and your income in the carbon cool climate calculator. And it gives you the, the carbon footprint of a household like you. And then you go through and you adjust it and you say, well, I don't have two cars. I have one car and I fly this many miles and I, this is my diet and this is how much stuff I buy. And then it compares your carbon footprint to similar households. And then you can also join programs like we have a a program that um, gets college students to um, universities to compete against each other to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So we create these like simple, fun and social programs to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And, And really, that's much more effective than just some online tool It's actually engaging with your peers and some sort of uh, program. So we've really worked a lot on that. And we also we also do outreach. So I'm co-chair of this conference called the Behavior, Energy, and Climate Change Conference, where we bring uh, policymakers, practitioners, academics, and, and non-governmental organizations kind of together uh, to share best practices and engaging people on climate change.
1: Uh, what does behavior energy exactly entail?
2: So we've uh, learned over the past several decades a lot about individual and organizational um, motivation. So what motivates our behavior and then how to influence that behavior by changing, giving people kind of information and influences before they take decisions and then after they take decisions, giving them kind of positive feedback or reinforcing their behaviors. A lot of times you want to get people kind of their foot in the door by taking a small behavior. And then, you know, getting them to make that public, for example, uh, will kind of change the way often that they think about themselves and how they identify themselves with a particular issue. So just getting them to, you know, make a commitment and then, you know, tell the world that they're doing this, then you can kind of get them to level up and, and take bigger actions. Then when they take those actions, you want to give them positive feedback, and you want to make you know engage engage their peer networks, and there are so so many ways that we can give people kind of reinforcing messages and also persuasive messaging and and other techniques to motivate their behavior. Um, so you know we we can change anyone's behavior, uh, you know if you have the right right amount of resources and influence. Uh, the question is. How do we um, with limited resources, change behavior on a massive scale? and I think this is really pretty interesting with the uh, coronavirus, how we're seeing the entire world uh, change our behavior and uh you know for this threat, and kind of comparing that now to the climate crisis, which is going to be much more pervasive, is much more certain uh it it threatens kind of our entire uh, civilization. And yet people are not reacting at the same level, but perhaps hopefully we're going to learn some lessons about how to influence behavior um, from, from this epidemic.
0: So you're right. I mean, I'm sure that the coronavirus is changing the way that Cool Climate Network is framing their messaging about how to go about addressing something like climate change. We've seen that the coronavirus has had some positive impacts on the climate For example, we've seen this floating around on Twitter and news sites that air quality has improved in places like China. Um, Carbon footprint has significantly reduced because economic activity is decreasing. But Hmm. it also doesn't seem realistic to expect something like this to be sustained. Because at the end of the day, when um, people are going back into the workforce and reintegrating into society, we might fall back into our old habits. So what are, are there, is there any discourse happening within Cool Climate Network or just the environmental science community about how to almost, you know, leverage all of the changes that are happening right now to have a more effective approach to climate change when all of this is over?
2: Well, that's perfectly stated. Yeah, um, I, I completely agree that, you know, once the economic downturn is over and the economy recovers, you know, this is just going to be a short blip. Kind of in, in history, at least in terms of the climate, um, the climate is barely going to notice. In fact, this this uh, change uh, in emissions, we're still going to put a lot of emissions into the air this year. Just going to be a little less than than we would have otherwise. And it's with climate change, it's all cumulative. So the amount of uh, CO2 and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is just going up. It's just going up a little less. So. Kind of maybe kicking the worst consequences of climate change down the road, you know, a few months or something. But at the end of the day, what does it really matter uh, for climate change? It's a a short, uh, short short-term, you know, little less uh, of warming than we otherwise would have had. So, like, so the question, your question is then about how do we leverage this to, you know, change behavior, change policy, um, you know, reduce emissions of greenhouse gases in the future, certainly a lot of people are talking about that. But, you know, not a lot really is coming of it. I think there's a lot of fear here that um, this is kind of shifting focus away from other problems like climate change. Uh, it could be an excuse to um, to deregulate, as um, the Trump administration is already giving power plants and other industries... Leeway in their reporting, and so kind of deregulating. We could also uh, also reduce climate investments. So it, it, you know, in clean technology. Also, the fossil fuel prices have come way down. So with cheap gasoline, you know that really hurts the bottom line for buying an electric vehicle. A lot of the benefit of buying an electric vehicle is not having to pay gasoline. But when it's cheap, makes that a little less uh, attractive. So there. Um, while there's these short-term benefits, there's going to be, you know, also short-term challenges, and particularly for reducing emissions. So I, I, I'm i concerned. Um, you know, there's going to be some behaviors that'll get locked in, maybe like video conferencing and, you know, doing conferences, in, in, like not in-person meetings that, that could be working from home. There's going to be a few things like that, that would be positive outcomes. But Certainly going to be a lot of negative outcomes as well, and it's who knows if if it'll be at the end of the day, day even worse or better because of, of of the coronavirus
1: do you think our reaction as a government as a a planet to coronavirus is a warning to act on climate change now before it goes downhill mm-hmm. even more than it is you know yeah. currently.
2: Yeah, it really is fascinating to me that um, governments have paid attention, uh, even though too late. They've listened to scientists and they've kind of listened to predictions and all kind of based on modeling and expert opinion about how fast this can spread. Have heeded those warnings and you know take a massive actions to slow down the economy. It's it's really pretty amazing and it's certainly a potential lesson for for climate change. Um, unfortunately, you know it's not that immediate. By by far, it's not immediate. I mean, I think if you knew, for example, in California, we had wildfires two years ago, a hundred people died. I mean, it was just completely traumatic it was this horrible event we've seen hurricane katrina maybe around the time you were born over a thousand people died in that event in louisiana and across the south and if you knew that was about to come i'm sure california would shut down its economy to prevent those people from dying from, from these tragedies that blew. they would have done the same thing but the problem is you don't know that it's coming and it's may not be coming in the politician's career <laughs> So so it's certainly going to be much, much more challenging. Um, I think there is something interesting for policy, though, that maybe um, there's an increased recognition of the role of government to protect uh, populations and for health, public health. And you can't just kind of, you know, let the market solve a problem like this. Um, You know, you kind of need you need to intervene and you need to prepare. So a lot of climate action planning is also about resiliency planning. So if you're a local government, you want to do not, a, not only a plan, but a resiliency plan. And, and I think there's an opportunity to, to have some resiliency in planning around adaptation and resiliency for climate change and kind of preparing for big threats like that to be a positive outcome, I guess.
0: And I guess right now we're kind of, we'll see the results of that experiment since the it- EPA rolled back so many protections like you were talking about earlier. And now that companies don't have to meet certain air quality rules, now we'll see if they will actually care about the population and the environment. But, you know, you were talking about how we don't really know what's coming with climate change. What are some of the things that have already come and what are some things that we foresee coming within our lifetime that might maybe be a call to action to the people who are listening to this?
2: So, well, natural disasters uh, are beginning becoming more um, common and much larger. So over the last three years, natural disasters in the United States have cost almost half a trillion dollars in damages. So economic damages, these are from um, large uh, weather events like, like hurricanes, uh, flooding, uh, wildfires, and all of those are exacerbated by climate change. And they've also cost thousands of lives as well. And so uh, we're starting to see those become much more common and having to pay for those. So in California, we all feel it in California because we had these wildfires um, a couple of years ago and now um, we experience regular blackouts and that they have to sh- essentially that kind of shuts down the economy as well because the the power lines, you know, and, and during fire season and and the and transformers, and you know, basically basic, our basic infrastructure is not prepared for um, for you know long, prolonged, uh, dry uh, and hot weather, and that can cause just massive wildfires that spread really quickly. So they like shut down the entire economy. Well, we also saw these horrible images of people not being able to escape the fire, and hundred people dying in those in those fires, and that. I think is having an effect on people. It, it has an effect on people here. And I think other parts of the country, like in the South and in Florida and in, in the, the the Gulf States and the East Coast, where you weren't expecting those storms to be so regular and so powerful that I think they're starting to affect people's psychology. And I actually really am interested in, in what you think about this because I, I feel that this is such a a. a, a a difficult generation to be growing up in. Um, so in the 2000s already, we've had 9-11 followed by the Great Recession. We've had really polarizing you know, politics. We've had the climate crisis, which it really affects youth and then how you think about the future. And now you've got the coronavirus and all of that just in two decades. It's kind of like, how does it affect your psychology? How, what's this new generation? Z, well, how are you going to react to this new world that you're facing.
1: I don't know. I'm speaking for myself here, but I feel like we have no faith uh, almost. Yeah. I mean, I could probably say like, you know, try to repro like Greta Thunberg or something like the adults in power, you know, don't really, you try to tell them and they don't really do much, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, no faith.
0: I think I'm on the other end of the spectrum and, you know, that's kind of why this podcast is called the utopian. It's because We're trying to be imaginative again, and we're trying to find ways that we can reconstruct our society in a way that it's never been constructed before so that it's more equipped to tackle problems like this. And I actually think the approach that we need to take is stronger institutions. That has to be the future, because if we can build institutions that, especially in sectors like Mm -hmm. environmental impact and economic impact, if we can build institutions that have the goal of strengthening these sectors then I really really do think that there's something there and I mean I understand it's like one of the biggest collective action problems that humanity will ever face until humanity goes extinct but I really hope that there's something there because if that isn't we're doomed and I don't like to think that we're doomed
1: yeah and just going on what Jenny said just I think you just like not believe that something's going to happen but try to work on it anyway trying to improve institutions and in the future really because there's no other way. I mean, like you can just give up and not do anything about it. to take mm. it like down.
2: I mean, I think what you're saying is very consistent um, with each other so that you have all these fears and you have no faith that it's working out without big changes, without us figuring out how to, how to make this world better. Um, yeah. And you know, that fear is a big motivator. It's certainly we're seeing how fear is motivating behavior change now. Um, for those of us who like care about climate change and believe in it and are freaked out about it, that motivates our our behavior to try to do something even beyond what you ever thought was possible. Um, that's certainly the way I feel about my work. Um, you know, that fear motivates me every day and it gets me thinking about new ways that we can, you know, do 10 times more. And now I'm starting to think about ways that I can do a 100 times more or a 1,000 times more. Uh, because I think the university system and society generally cha- trains us to be really marginal, uh, find, spe- especially in academia, find some problem that nobody else has worked on and make some like, incremental change that really only a few people care about. And meanwhile, civilization is like heading off a cliff, you know, and people are mainly like, like on their cell phones and working on these like little mundane esoteric problems that we have to do a better job of channeling our resources and using our skills and talents to to be most effective and i think society certainly academia is not training people to do that i think industry generally doesn't train people to do that even in the environmental field if you think oh, i'm just going to go get an environmental job and make myself feel good because i'm working you know for sierra Club or whoever if you're not doing your job better than the next person who would have taken your place. You're hurting. You're not even helping the system because you're just doing some marginal. You know, you have to make sure that your marginal benefit is actually re- creating the most change, positive change. So um, here's a good example. You do this YouTube, Utopian podcast for, for this effort. Hopefully it can, you know, uh, have have benefits far beyond what you could have done. I don't know doing something else. I mean, find your unique talent and figure out how you can leverage that. And and I often feel that I'm not doing that. I feel like I can always find new ways to be much, much more effective and instead of spinning my wheels and spending my hours, you know, immersed in uh, projects that are not going to be the most effective.
0: But then at the end of the day, that mentality is what's going to spur innovation. So I think your head is in the perfect place, because if you were kind of satisfied with like the bubble of work and kind of just content with the way things were, then you wouldn't have the creativity to want to do more and go beyond. Um, But I I wanted to ask you, because you were kind of talking about how um, we're responding to fear now. So if you had to convince me right now, And, you know, I'm a climate change skeptic. Um, I I don't think Mm. it's real. I kind of think it's a hoax. If you had to Mm. convince me right now that climate change impacts me and I need to go out there and vote for a candidate who supports the Green New Deal or any sort of large scale environmental policy that's as intensive as the Green New Deal, what would you tell me?
2: You know, so I don't engage with climate skeptics and I'm not sure it's very productive, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, I mean, and I know you're just doing this, you know, that was a question of be provocative and I, I love provocative questions, so it's great to do. Um, you know, I, I think we need to create kind of a wave of, of support for climate solutions and it's going to have like kind of a natural diffusion. And you so see, you start with those really, really early adopters, and then that goes to like the early majority, and then that eventually becomes the majority, and then, you know, the vast majority, then the climate skeptics, they may never catch on. They may be like way on the very, very end of the technology. It's like the Luddites who don't even have a cell phone, even like a flip phone or something, because it's like, you're never going to convince them, right? To even, right? So to use the new technology to have the new solutions. Um, What I do though think is when you're trying to speak to somebody maybe across the political spectrum who who um maybe this just isn't their thing, you know, definitely find something to connect on. Uh if you can connect on values, um, so understand what people's values are, understand what's important to them, uh, then you've got a good starting place. So, for example, there is very little correlation, in effect. So those are who are highly educated you might think are more likely to maybe be care about climate change they do care about climate change but their emissions are also higher so income and education are both positively correlated with emissions so those who have higher education they tend to travel more they tend to eat out more tend to have you know go to go to restaurants they tend to like go to entertainment services they tend to express their social status through their consumption Whereas somebody who might be, say, less educated, maybe have a lower income, they can really connect on their bottom line. So like saving money, not wasting, taking care of their family. And we find that climate skeptics actually have much lower carbon footprints than like the most active, you know, climate activist in many cases, just because they... They don't want to throw money away and be be foolish. And they're really smart about how they kind of spend their money and resourceful. And, you know, so you can find ways to connect with people um, that are kind of about their lifestyle. And um, oh, also being vulnerable is very good. Right. <laughs> so with anybody, any to build trust with anybody, you have to be vulnerable. So the first thing to do is like admit your own weaknesses. You're much more likely to get people to admit their weaknesses. It's like when you're being confronted by a bully. They might be attacking you. And the first thing you do is just say, oh, I I know my my shoes are ridiculous. I don't know why I wear those. Hey, that's a nice shirt you're wearing. Where'd you get that? You know, I mean, you like kind of trying to flip it around so that you can kind of build common common ground. Um, It does take a lot of work, though.
1: And that sort of goes back to behavior change, the work you sort of do. Right.
2: Well, that's right. I mean, there are a lot of ways that we know how, about human psychology and how it works and inner, interpersonal behavior. It's one good thing to know it. It's another big thing to be good at it. Right? So you can be really good at influencing others without any kind of like theoretical background. So I, I know the theory. Uh, I, I try in our work to implement those best practices, but doesn't mean I'm always good at it. Do
1: you think coronavirus is giving you new ways to think about how society reacts in the behavior change and um, can you carry those lessons to climate change and the behavior change challenges isn't there?
2: I hope so. I mean, it's really early on. Um, it's definitely changed. Honestly, it's restored my faith in humanity a lot, frankly. Um, seeing people make all of these sacrifices, seeing governments shut down, for the sake of saving lives, for the common good, um, that people can come together to anticipate this big problem and, and, and listen to science and take these very drastic measures. I would never have thought that was possible. I mean, economics tells you that people are not willing to make sacrifices for the common good, right? So, And here is like the whole country, the whole world is doing it. So it, it it really is helping to restore, in some sense, my, my faith, faith in humanity and our, our ability to address these big problems.
0: As, a, as an aspiring economist, I, I definitely think that much of the world is influenced by neoclassical economics, which says that, you know, um, the invisible hand rules the market and supply and demand regulate everything. But we're here because we're trying to bring the human in economics. That's what's missing.
2: Yeah, well, there is also um, a real concern that I have uh, in that uh, we need to improve our economics uh, literature, particularly on price elasticity of demand for fossil fuels and energy, because they're kind of the general thinking is, okay. while there's no vaccine for climate change, people think of like a carbon tax almost as this vaccine, as this you know, put this carbon tax, it's kind of going to solve our problem. But unfortunately, this studies are really out of date. They're really poorly done. And when you really do good um, elasticity of demand study that shows what is the reaction that we can expect in the marketplace by a change in prices, it's actually much less reaction than the literature currently suggests. There's some reasons for that. That's because economists and economic journals are particularly um, prone to uh, accepting a study that says that you know there's gonna be an effect of, of price. In fact, there's been some studies that have shown just like selection bias of studies that have shown, hey, there wasn't an effect of price, like don't even get um, accepted to, the, to be published. But it's not just that, it's that the studies are really poorly, poorly done and they um, could be really improved. They're very outdated and using different data sets. So for example, if you have in Europe, if you just look at the European case, if you were to double the price say of gasoline, you actually would see a pretty big effect because prices are already high. So if you go from $4 a gallon to $8 a gallon, you actually see a pretty good size reduction in emissions from, from vehicles. Whereas in the U.S. case, if you go from $2 to $4, well, we did that. We, we saw a doubling, complete doubling of gasoline prices for like seven, five years, but it, it was pretty long-term. And we saw emissions basically go nowhere. But if you look at the economics literature, which is based on kind of like globally, or going back to the 1970s when there was also this huge, you know, crisis that was very, it wasn't just an effect of prices, it was spect- effect of shortage of fuel uh, at, the, at the, you know, for people to like actually fill up their vehicles. And so, anyway, all these studies are showing, yeah, like gasoline, like prices matter. But actually, when you look at the most recent data, we find that it doesn't. So here's an example of using uh, this outdated data, these really poor models. And to think we've got this solution, carbon tax, and it's going to change behavior when actually we need to do much more than that. We, we know that regulation works, um, that if you regulate power plant emissions and it's applied equitably across the country, that's that's really reducing emissions. We know that if we make fuel economy standards that, that like set an even playing field, that's actually the best thing that's reduced emissions besides changing the switch away from coal, those two things have been like the biggest levers that have driven down emissions. But that's been due in part to regulation. So we have to use regulation, we have to use markets, and we have to use behavior and technology, innovation and technology. All of those are big levers, and we can't kind of put too much faith in one uh, over another. But certainly price affects behavior, but you can use um, other influences to affect behavior as well.
1: How do we convince policymakers then to go for regulation uh, rather than primarily regu- regulation, other than other um, routes? Like you mentioned, technology, and that's very right. you know as um, best to you know get rid of the problem at source. But um, right. how do we just switch over to regulation, or how do we convince people and policymakers?
2: So I think we need very good science, the science needs to be updated, and then we need to uh, get um, coordinated efforts among, you know, advocacy groups to focus the science and to the right policymakers and and make that change. Like if you want to leverage you as an individual and your power, focus on policy, focusing on making good data available to advocacy groups, and then making those advocacy groups get that to the policymakers to create change. Um, that's your best route to making change. I've been giving these talks lately about 20 underappreciated problems where people can make a huge impact. Or I'm talking like 10, ten hundred thousand times more impact than they're going to make in their career. And they almost all uh, revolve around um, data science, information, and channeling that to improving policy. Uh, because if you've got a policy that is you know, that could be the most effective route, right? But if you've got all this bad information that's supporting the wrong policies, you can be often counterproductive. So we really need to work on finding what those big levers are. And a lot of times you find that nobody's working on these hugely important topics. Like I just mentioned, carbon taxes, very, very few people are working on that. But yet that's being proposed as the solution. And really not many people are like, digging down deep into the weeds of like what's underpinning these studies and where we can improve those studies to actually change the outcome they're kind of just running with bad science and unfortunately you're going to get bad outcome
0: Yeah, I have a really funny story with the carbon tax. I was in a conference in Wyoming and ExxonMobil's press person was there, and he gave this really big speech about how um, like, ExxonMobil is not like environmentally unfriendly. We support the carbon tax. We wanna be taxed. And I remember the first thing I thought was, if ExxonMobil supports the carbon tax, I think the carbon tax is not enough. <laughs> um, but I wanted to go back to what you were saying about how coordination among activists is the most important thing to impact policy. Do you think that there is that coordination there or are activist groups not entirely in agreement about the mechanisms through which we should tackle this problem?
2: They're absolutely not in agreement at all. And in fact, many times it's the environmental groups that kill the most promising environmental policies, just because they're not coordinated, because they're trying to get maybe more. Maybe they want more out of a policy than what we're getting. And it doesn't actually get passed because they're advocating for something that just isn't practical um, a lot of times there's a there's a big uh, conflict in between environmental justice communities and between you know kind of climate activist communities and they they shouldn't be pitted against each other, but then many times they are uh, There's certainly a lot of competition between environmental groups um, there's a competition for funding and resources. And so, so absolutely, they don't have a good history of working together. Many times they do, and many times they jump on the wrong bandwagon. I don't know. There's kind of this momentum builds around a particular, you know, action, and maybe there's always an opportunity cost with whatever you do. So if you choose to focus on one particular policy, that means there's less bandwidth to work on something else. And so you have to be careful about you know which bandwagon you jump on and which policies you support and. I think there are not a lot of technical people oftentimes in these groups that really don't understand the science. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of work to do there. However, I have seen a small group of really well-trained, smart people make a big difference. One of the good advocacy groups I think that does a good job of this is NRDC, Natural Resources Defense Council, they have a lot of PhDs. They have a lot of very smart people, very smart policy people who actually can help write um, draft legislation, identify what the biggest problems are and kind of get that implemented into law and like fast track some, some, you know, policymaking. Uh, Cause they just get right to the heart of the matter and they, they, they're just top experts on this. And there are other groups that, that have that capacity and we need, really need to listen to them and figure out what policies to support.
1: Um, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke to um, a climate activist, and she sort of argued that if extreme action isn't taken, nothing really, really will be done. And, you know, she made the point that government has known about climate change since, I think, 79, 1979. And yet we, you know, the EPA was formed, but we still haven't faced climate change head on. Do you believe that we should take, you know, incremental measures or... You know, something big must be done.
2: I think something big must be done. I I absolutely agree with that. I think that incremental measures are not going to happen fast enough. And you certainly need a big comprehensive policy. Unfortunately, a lot of times with the big comprehensive policies, they get so squishy that there's so many loopholes that not a lot gets done. So there certainly is a need for but it's got to be comprehensive for for big policy but it's got to be comprehensive and it's got to be kind of really well thought out. Um there's some good examples like in in Europe, um Denmark is one example where they they said okay we're going to be Copenhagen's going to be carbon neutral and the whole country of Denmark is like going to reduce its m- emissions by you know 80% you know much faster than the rest of the country the rest of the world. And the way they did this is they said well what is technically feasible like they did a a study that looked at all of their industry this is this is exactly how we're going to do it we're going to be get all renewable energy we're going to have all of our electric vehicles we're going to you know they've they looked at exactly what they're going to do and then they set their target based on that and they just implemented into law so that's like a strategy that's that's going to work california on the other hand they kind of listen to the t- scientists and say okay well we need 80% reduction by 2050. And in order to do that, we kind of by 2030, we've got to get 40% reduction at 5% per year. So we're just going to set our target at 40% reduction without knowing how we're going to get there. Like they did some studies of saying like, they didn't do it that way. They said, what would it take to get 40% reduction? And they just tweaked the levers down, like we're going to have 50% electric vehicles by then. or whatever. You know, it's like, that's not achievable, right? So um, we have to kind of do like smart planning and it's gonna be fully comprehensive and it's gonna be backed up by law.
0: So when we are kind of talking about this idea of feasibility, technical feasibility and smart planning, what are some policies that maybe you're putting on the table or you Uh, think is really significant that's being put on the table that's going to work and it's the future?
2: Thank you for asking that. Okay, I'll give you one. Uh, Feebates. So everybody likes rebates, right? A rebate, like you're going to buy an electric vehicle and you're going to get $7,500 from Fed, you might get $2,000 from the state, and you're like, great, that's a rebate. I love a rebate. Well, a, a rebate is a tax on everybody else, and you get the financial benefit, but it tends to be regressive. So rich people who buy the electric cars. They get the money to buy a technology to drive down the, the cost eventually, right? But that's regressive. Low-income people end up paying the rich people to buy the electric cars, and uh, it's also a, a cost. A fee bait, on the other hand, says, okay, you're going to buy an, an SUV. Great. If you're going to buy an SUV that has more power and that gets less fuel economy, that takes that, you know, has more emissions, then you're going to pay $5,000 extra. And that if you get the SUV that has less emissions, whether it's electric or not, you get a $5,000 check. And you can both get the SUV that you that that you want, but you're just going to have to pay more if you want the, want the more polluting and pay less if you get less polluting. It totally offsets itself. It's not a tax on anybody. It has double the impact, twice the benefit at no cost to, to society, to government, right? So this is a way more effective way than a a rebate. And now you might say, oh, but everybody likes a rebate and nobody likes a fee, right? But it's just nobody likes a tax either. And that's what a rebate is. A rebate is a tax. So um, we need to find that, – that's a wonderful way that you can do this across all technologies. You can, you can do it for appliances and any energy-using or any carbon-producing technology. Unfortunately, there's been some bad examples of how it's been put into practice. So it was, it was proposed in California in 2010, a fee bait for vehicles, but unfortunately, they did it the wrong way. They didn't listen to the scientists. Rocky Mountain Institute produced this long report that said exactly how to do a fee bait program, and you do it across vehicle classes. Like I said, you want to buy an SUV? Great. You get the hybrid version, it's cheaper, because you're getting the rebate, and you want to do this high-powerful one, it's more expensive. But what in California, they proposed it not across classes, so they proposed it that all low-emission vehicles, like these little small cars, they get all the rebates and all the SUVs and the trucks, they have to pay the fees. And so it doesn't increase innovation in the vehicle classes. What you want is SUVs, a mid midsize car, whatever you want, you increase more innovation within that vehicle class because you know you use an incentive to produce the low, low emissions vehicles. Also, of course, the, the big um, industry uh, car companies said, well, we don't make any money on the small cars. We just sell the, sell the small cars so we can you know, eventually get you to buy the big car. <laughs> and whereas that's the one where we make all our money. So it just, it didn't make good business sense. It didn't make good sense for innovation. And eventually it got killed by the car companies because actually it was poorly designed. But I, I love the idea of fee baits. Uh, I think they could be really powerful, uh, way more effective than rebates and even more effective than, way more effective than carbon pricing. Here's the thing with carbon pricing. You double the price of fossil fuel, which we saw, emissions from vehicles go almost nowhere. They went; they did go down by 10% after the Great Recession. Vehicle miles travel went down by 10% of fuel. But we also, prior to that, had a, almost a doubling of fuel prices and, and vehicle travel went nowhere, right? So you're taxing the wrong thing if you're thinking about a carbon tax. Whereas you don't even have to tax the vehicles. You just put a fee bait, which is revenue neutral, costs nothing, you get... You, and and you what you're doing is you're taxing the thing that has choice. That's the thing about fossil fuels. That's why it's inelastic. if you if you gotta drive to work, the price of gasoline goes up, you just drive to work, right? um you, you, you know you don't have a lot of choice there, but when you go to make that vehicle, I can get the cheaper one that has less emissions, or I can get the more expensive one that has more emissions. right there, you have choice, and that increases choice in the marketplace. so it's, it's good economics you're pricing the, the thing that has a lot of flexibility and um, you're making a huge instantaneous impact that's locking in that uh, benefit as long as you own that vehicle. And you could also do it on used vehicles. It's just good economics. Unfortunately, in reality, all the bad economic policies are the ones that that get, uh, are of choice or the one that people are jumping behind. They're jumping behind really the, the wrong solutions. And I'm seeing that in the environmental community. People jumping on carbon, carbon taxes, people jumping on, on rebates and incentives. And it's all misapplied economics, unfortunately.
0: Just to clarify. So it would be like a progressive system. So the more environmentally friendly you are, the higher of a check you get. And it's not some sort of flat fee. That's one of my questions. And then I guess building off of that, would it be facilitated by the EPA and then building off of that? How far would it go? Would it go as far as air travel?
2: Yeah, it's taking the last one. Absolutely. Air travel should should be a fee. You could do a fee bait program on air travel. So so the more costly flight or the more costly, the more costly environmentally seat on a plane could pay a fee. And those who are on the low carbon option could get a rebate. Um, the EPA certainly has to be involved. Um, government agencies have to be involved in inciting the thresholds and then Moving those thresholds down over time. And so there's, there, it's not totally free of government uh, intervention (laughs) for sure, but it's not like a tax that everybody pays. You take a small portion of the revenue and you, you, you allocate it to, to the regulate, regulatory part. It sets, it also sets an even playing field for the entire industry because they're all governed by the same, by the same economics, right? And that's a really important part of regulation is setting the level playing field. And then in terms of like behavior, like if you're more environmentally friendly, you get a, a different size check. I mean, you kind of could do that. I think extend this, not just to technologies, but to individuals. Um, I know there's a lot of interest in kind of a, a carbon tax that gives people benefits. Um, maybe differently based on their income or perhaps how they use their energy or something else like that. However, I think really doing this at the technology, at the point of technology, is is the best way to lock in the behaviors rather than trying to measure, you know, individual behavior or outcomes, which tends to be kind of impractical and the ways that you can kind of slip out of that.
0: Just to clarify, so you're trying to affect the supply side of things, not the demand side of things.
2: Well, no, it affects the demand side because it gives uh, a price signal at the point of sale. So you've got a choice between two electric vehicles. The hybrid vehicle, instead of being more expensive, is actually cheaper because you're getting a rebate. And the non-hybrid vehicle is actually more expensive. So you can choose the non-hybrid if you want. Maybe it has more power or some other features that you or it's bigger or something like that. But um, so you're, you're, you're influencing demand by price uh, directly at the point of sale. You can also influence behavior, for example, uh, by driving, having insurance paid on how many miles you drive. Now, it kind of is that way already, like you're supposed to say how many miles you drive, but it barely changes the price of your insurance if you drive more miles. What it should just be is almost like a linear, you pay linearly based on how many miles you drive. And that um, is more equitable. Um, those who drive more should pay more. They should make pay, and they pay more for roads. They're certainly paying more. They should pay more for climate change infrastructure. And so, just that once you get a price signal on, on actual people's behavior like that, um, then that that can be effective. Um, of course, you have that for energy. People that use more energy. We used to have a, a tiered system. We're kind of getting away from that. Um, unfortunately, it's it's a it's it's a huge problem for the solar industry and for efficiency overall, it used to be that if you use more energy, you get into a higher price point. So that new energy that you use is actually much more expensive. And then you, you can even jump to another tier where it becomes really expensive. So you you want energy to not like be more expensive the higher you go. And you could actually do that with a fee bait program too. If you get too far off the chart, then your car just becomes astronomically expensive. Right. And that's if you really, really want to drive that Hummer, you you know, (laughs) I guess you could, but you got to pay a hundred thousand dollars extra for it or whatever.
1: What else can we put a fee bait on? Um, Like not only cars and airplanes or uh, what else is realistically feasible? And also, um, why has not this fee bait concept caught on really? Because I feel like we talk more about the carbon tax rather than like a fee bait.
2: Right, well, um, there's just a little bit of interesting history there. Um, So it was designed mainly around motor vehicles. And in fact, um, about the same time that these were being discussed, we also started to ramp up regulation on fuel economy standards and the auto industry kind of got behind that. And that works, that also works really, really well. If you can have fuel economy standards that are stringent enough and just ramped up over time, Look, that works really well too. Um, you can actually do both in concert and to get even double the effect, but you know, having both regulation on fuel economy and you know allowing fee base is just kind of like too much for the industry to accept. Now, where, um, because fuel economy standards are being rolled back, um, this is actually a good time for states like California to say, well, of course, we're, we can still regulate our emissions in California, but other- elsewhere, uh, because we have a waiver to do that. But for other states to say, look, we're gonna we're gonna just implement this tax program which we have the right to do as a state government you can you, you can tax um vehicles if you wanted, but you could apply it across appliances and you could apply it across anything that uses energy Airlines was a great example you could technically do it on other industries, but it would be much harder because you have this measurement problem like you have to go out to every like if you want to do milk you know there's like uh dairy manure management practices that could be implemented by some dairy farmers and they should, you know, get a credit for that. And if they have bad practices, then they should, you know, pay more for it. But then you've got all this regulatory and measurement and certification, you know, barriers and that, that just is, is much harder to do. People can get around them. So you can kind of apply it, but then you just have all of these kind of market barriers, I think that would make it much more, Less practical than kind of energy consuming uh, uh, appliances.
0: So, earlier you said you wanted to talk about more, um, when we were talking about the fee based program, you said you wanted to talk about um, more strategies like that. You can talk
2: about those okay. now. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, like pay as you go insurance is, was one of them. That was another strategy that kind of works like that. Um, I think another good opportunity is. Voluntary carbon offsets, so um, we wrote this paper years ago that can put the carbon price on anything at point of sale. So what you do is you you just have, okay, we can't tell the difference between two types of milk, but we know that milk on average has uh, about two kilograms of CO2 per dollar of milk, something like that. Or you could actually do it per unit of milk um, in, in physical units, so all milk gets charged this particular carbon price cereal gets charged another and meat at different classes gets charged another price and you can kind of like when you go to the point of sale say okay well here's the here's my my list of items and here's the carbon price and uh, what you could do is you could say a retailer who links up its accounting system that way can either pay for everybody's carbon offsets carbon neutral shopping shop at whole foods it's carbon neutral they could do that if they wanted. Or you could have a carbon neutral shopping day. Be like, "Okay, we have found a sponsor. Everything you buy today today is going to be carbon neutral." Have like a big event where people people kind of look at that. So there I think there are ways that you can influence um you know, have more money. Basically, it's a way to to get money to allocate to projects that can have a good chance of offsetting emissions. Um now there's a lot of uh, challenges with carbon offsets. Um, a lot of times they're they're not real and it lead to as real reductions as people would like. It's kind of like this risk assessment of you know giving more money to this industry to bring down prices and maybe that's going to have more people buy them. And it, it's not exactly clear that it's totally offsetting greenhouse gas emissions, but um, they are. It is an effective solution and. Ultimately, we have to go carbon neutral. And the only way to go carbon neutral is by investing like in reforestation and uh, you know carbon capture and sequestration and other technologies. And usually that's about taking money and giving it to somebody who can do that. And so um, I think we have to start thinking about how ways to like, take your own carbon footprint and offset it. I pay $30 a month and it offsets my carbon footprint. And I do it in this really personally meaningful way. So I give money to a cook stove project in Rwanda that is helping families, uh, particularly women, get low-cost cook stoves that are reducing their fuel consumption, that's reducing greenhouse gas emissions, it's dramatically improving the air quality for, for their children and for their family, and it's giving them more money that they can spend on education and other things. It's a wonderful project. I'd love to just donate to directly. It also happens to be a carbon offset, so I can by thirty dollars a month, kind of be carbon neutral and also supporting these wonderful projects around the world. To get more people to do that, um, I think it it is feasible to do.
1: Um, How is that specific program you mentioned? Carbon, um, a carbon offset. Because uh, it takes, you know, energy and fuel, I guess, to take these sto- get deliver these stoves even to families or women. And how do they how do they calculate these things? Also, how does the carbon maybe I misunderstood this, the carbon and milk affect, you know, say us on a global scale?
2: Yeah, so the way that particular carbon offset works, and there's a whole, um, there's organizations that certify them. One of them is called the gold standard. And if people are really interested in carbon offsets, I recommend you go look at the gold standard and how they do their certification. And there are other certification programs. That particular one, what it does is it's just kind of a market incentive. And so what they do is they give the money not directly to the woman to buy her cook stove, if, if you did that, that would be very effective. So here's a cook stove, and then she buys less coal, and that saves greenhouse gas emissions. It would be pretty clear what the benefits were. You could just calculate that. But the way they do it instead is they say, okay, cook stoves generally cost you know, $50. We're going to make them now because of my carbon offsets. They're going to take all that money from the carbon offsets, and now they're going to sell them for $30. Because they're selling them for $30, they're getting way more people to buy them. That's a price point, you know, because maybe the households spend hundreds of dollars a year on fuel. They spend a $30 cook stove. It pays for itself in a couple months, and then it's much more attractive to them. And now we're disseminating those all across the, the country because they're so cost-effective now, and people just want to get them. That's using markets in your favor. And they're, they're reducing emissions because people use less fuel, and the, the fuel is associated with emissions the the milk is one that's important because uh so milk and uh, and and beef and uh in particular uh has a lot of emissions from methane and also from nitrous oxide so that's from the fer- the food that the cattle are eating is grown uh using a lot of fertilizer and other inputs and that fertilizer produces nitrous oxide which is very has a really high global warming signal so um, so both the the feed and the feedlot and the methane that the cows produce has very high global warming potential. The methane is produced anaerobically, so the cows digest their food through bacteria in their gut. Instead of producing CO2, it produces CH4, which is, has a very high global warming potential, and it mostly comes out of burps, in fact, not at the other end. And so. So so you can while you can manage the manure, the cows are still burping up that, that CH4. And in fact, um there's some studies that show that grass-fed beef is actually worse for the climate because, as perverse as this sound, because the cows live longer if you feed them grass, and that's much longer producing methane uh, than if you in a feedlot and then they fatten them up really quickly, and then they they slaughter them younger. And so um, you know, they all, kind of all these perverse effects. Right. But but basically cattle are in the U.S., like the three biggest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions are essentially cars, coal and cows. And so cows are a big one. Uh, so reducing the amount of meat and dairy you consume, it can be an effective way uh, to reduce your emissions. Also, of course, uh, Americans in general, we throw away about 25 percent of the food we buy and we eat about 25 percent more calories than we need. So there, there's like the biggest benefit is actually just reducing waste. Um, and the next big thing you can do is, is, is shift to a plant-based diet, which is which is certainly uh, much a lot healthier for you overall.
0: So as you were talking, I picked up on two things that really stick out to me. So you mentioned that we should shop at Whole Foods because it's um, carbon neutral generally. It-
2: if they did that, I, I didn't mean to imply oh. that. No, like oh, they, are not, oh. they're, they are not doing that. They could do it, but they don't. Okay,
0: then this question, I guess, um, or this statement, I guess, makes less of a sense. But mm-hmm. um, like, I guess one of the problems that I saw. And then you brought up like um it would be more environmentally friendly to fatten up the cows and kind of instead of grass feeding them. But I can see, you know, those individuals who care a lot about animal cruelty finding issue with uh, that. And then, so and then. Right. And then um with Whole Foods. I know that you you yeah. said we're not uh, they're not yeah. carbon neutral anymore, but so Oxfam actually records Whole Foods as a really really bad supplier because their supply chain is very very untraceable and it's very likely that they're not respecting um the lowest end of their supply chain. So I was kind of thinking of this, and you as a policymaker, I, I want to think yeah. of your yeah. advice on this. But what if like for every product that went into the market? It, it was tagged with three designations, and this could kind of be like helping us work toward a world that's more fair. But the three designations are primarily um, animal cruelty, fair trade and climate respect. So we basically tag these every product that goes in the market. We give them a, like a grade for those three criterias. Do you think that something like that could be the future? Because sometimes I wonder if an asymmetry of information in the end of like the person who's consuming the good is the problem. Because, you know, when I go to Whole Foods or I go to Key Food, I pick up a milk and I don't really know where it came from. And, you know, it looks cheap and I'll buy it. But do you think that if there was something like that, that brought information at the point of purchase, we could have really, really significant impact?
2: Well, that, that's been a dream of environmentalists for a long time, and people who work in the life cycle assessment community in particular have been like, looking at that. Um, it is, it's been talked about kind of like the holy grail of, of kind of like consumer advocacy, uh, or maybe a dream, but it is a bit of a pipe dream, unfortunately. I, and when you look, start looking at the science of it, you find that there's so much uncertainty that the margin of error between competing products is going to be generally larger than the difference between the two products. So if you you're, you know you can come up with a number, but if you want to be scientific about this, you have to come up with a range and not a single value. And then when you start comparing like Coke versus Pepsi or two competing products, the margin of error is going to be so high that you're just not going to be able to tell the difference between the two. Uh, and unfortunately, that is really the reality. Um, you should in fact just give all soda the same label or all milk kind of the same label. it's it's not good as uh, generally like oat milk is better, right or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and if you start want to compare competing products, then you really get into uh, certification has a very high cost. and you also start um, looking at you know the large organizations. That are able to pay for that certification start to outcompete the smaller producers who can't perfect pay for that certification. Even organic runs into this problem where, you know, the best produce I get at my market is not certified organic. It's it's, it's better than organic, but they don't have uh, they don't pay for the certification. So I think there's just a lot of challenges in actually being able to adequately and accurately certify even one metric like carbon, much less um, three metrics or, or more, which would certainly be better. But that's why it's like the holy grail. I don't think it's something you're ever going to find. I don't think it's everything that's actually feasible unless it's on a voluntary basis. basis but then it's like asymmetric, as you mentioned. Not everybody's going to be doing it the same way. And so is that, is, is that better? Or it could be a source of greenwashing, for example.
0: It's kind of like a follow up. I, I have been thinking a lot about this. But what if the government was the certifier? What are problems that could arise because of that? Because, um, you know, the end goal at the end of the day is to redefine or reconstruct capitalism. Right now, capitalism is drift, driven by profit maximization. But could we redefine it to um, basically make the end goal be social impact? So if we had Mm -hmm. Maybe these like publicly shaming taglines Then companies are going to instead of um, fighting for profit, they're going to realize that their um, profits are impacted by um, demand, which is impacted by the social impact, because Mm -hmm. now the consumers are actually seeing the social impact at the point of purchase. So um, could the government be the um, certifier? First question. And then second question, could we reconstruct capitalism to make social impact? the end goal of it instead of profit maximization?
2: I think for your first question, um, I think certification is just too costly, uh, no matter who does it. And I don't think that government would do it necessarily more cost-effectively, and they could do it less cost-effectively. And also you just have the scientific problems that I mentioned. So um, I don't think that that's a solution. I think what they can do, um, like as an example, um, with, with cigarettes, they've been labeling on cigarettes, which actually hasn't been proven to be uh, as effective as people would like, but um, you, know, you could certainly pick out some products and then, uh, then label them or tax them uh, because they're just known to be high carbon. So you can certainly do that and government could play a big role in that. And that's kind of what we were talking about with, with carbon taxes and fee baits and you're kind of signaling certain products that are bad and maybe charging more, labeling them in a, in a, in a, in a different way. So I mean I love this certification idea, but and I've seen it so many times in so many different facets, and I've seen so many startup companies and student projects uh, doing these types of projects, and they all fail, and most of them fail quickly and miserably. So I just I, I like the idea, but and I've written papers and stuff on this myself, but it's just in reality uh, it's very very difficult to do. I think in terms of changing the bottom line um, from you know, GDP to, to wellness or happiness or uh, some other well-being indicator other than economic prosperity, I think ultimately is going to be necessary. I, I think the economics uh, will start, people will start to realize that um, GDP cannot grow infinitely. Um, in fact, we're starting to see uh, GDP slow down across the world. And I've, I've looked at the data, I haven't published it, but um, you can look at, just look at um, annual growth global GDP has been slowing down for some time. If you look at, you know, big countries like the United States or even China, like the amount of growth is slowing down. And and the re- there's some big structural reasons for that. Um, population is not growing as fast anymore. Um and it's going to continue to level off. Uh during the 20th century, women were moved into the workplace very, very quickly, particularly in the latter half half of the century. And that increased a lot of economic output. Also, at the same time, uh, people move from rural to urban areas, uh, and that dramatically increased uh, economic output and well-being. So all those demographic factors uh, are kind of like slowing down. We've kind of like already shifted the workforce as much as we can (laughs) into, you know, productivity and production, and we're starting to see a slowdown, a big slowdown in, in, in growth. And we can't rely on growth anymore to, you know, build well-being. And in fact, that growth has been accompanied by dramatic increases in in well-being throughout the world. And there's been certainly some benefit, a big benefit to having, you know, this economic development. Of course, it's come with a big price. And those those prices, those costs have been pushed out into the future. We're going to those costs, we're going to start to see increase as uh gdp decreases and so i I think uh once we start feeling the effects of of climate change and environmental degradation and we see economic progress kind of slow down i think people will start to realize that that hey the cost of inaction is actually much greater than the cost of action this is why all the only reason why anybody cares about climate change mitigation who understands is realize that the the benefits far outweigh the costs, or the cost of inaction far outweigh the cost of action. Right. So I think once people start realizing that it's way more effective to look at well-being of the planet, then countries and policymakers will will start taking that into consideration. It's it's kind of hard to see here in this country, <laughs> um, but I think in other countries they have looked at other metrics. Yeah, you, you do do run into quantification problem though. A dollar is just really easy to measure, right? A dollar is a dollar or whatever currency it's in. How do you measure, you know, you have to take a survey of people's well-being or happiness or or health or, you know, has to be an index made up of several different indicators and which um, of those variables do you weigh more than, than another? And it depends on, on what your values are and what you think is more important. Is public health more important? Is, you know, uh, getting um, is equity more important? Is education? Is you know, gender rights? Is, you know, um Whatever it happens to be that you care about, they're all important. Uh, but how do you weigh them in terms of creating an index that everyone can agree on? And if you ask any individual, they're going to weight those things differently. And so it's not just like a dollar, that's really easy. Dollar is a dollar. Some indicator of well being, a progress indicator. There's lots of well being progress indicators out there, and nobody can kind of really agree upon which is like the, the best one uh, to use.
0: Caroline, what are your thoughts on that? Because I would probably argue that it's wages and public health, because so if the environment is good, public health will be good. And then if wages are high, that means economically everyone's well off. I think, I mean, I'm not
1: even entirely sure because first we have to take action, I think, because I mean, at what point will we take action? And I think that makes a big difference. Um, And the kind of big action that we'll have to take, right? Whether it'll have to be dramatic and sudden or um, even what public health would be like at that certain point, whether it be five or 10 or, you know, 20 years down the line. And, you know, yeah, I'm not I'm not even sure.
2: Yeah, big action is important. I think one thing with, with workers um, is that if you you pay people more, they spend more and consume more and pollute more too, right? So it's um, certainly not not advocating that we have an economic downturn to solve climate change. I don't think that's a, that's, that's a solution. I think one thing that it, I, I like about focusing on workers, um, there's a couple of things. One is that clean energy uh, has more workers um, per dollar than dirty energy overall. So if you really want to focus on workers, workforce development, really clean tech solutions are a great way to do that. Other thing to, is that um, the more money we allocate to uh, lower income households, there's more of a multiplier effect. So I'm actually kind of really astounded by the um, stimulus package that they uh, put a cap and a, a decreasing threshold. Like, So it's like $75,000, you start to lose your benefits, and if you make $100,000, you get zero. And that means more money is going to lower income people, which is exactly how you want to stimulate the economy. Because if a low income person has a thousand dollar check, they're going to spend a thousand dollars. If you give a high income person a thousand dollar check, they'll probably just put it in their bank or like buy stock options or something else. Right. So um, uh, if you, the best way to stimulate the economy is actually through food stamps, you know, food stamps have like a multiplier effect that is, far greater than almost anything else that's been studied because they will spend it. They they will put that money, that the money will go back into the economy. And then that local market, I mean, it's not just a big super chain or whatever. They will probably, the owners of that will then respend that money again in the community and then just gets respent in a low community and just keeps, you know, um, multiplying. And that's really what you want to do is like, I think a focus on workers and a focus on kind of stimulating the base. You could call it middle-class, but, But really improving our, I think we have a huge problem in this country of um, leaving people behind. Uh, We're leaving them behind technologically, academically, um, socially, uh, economically, and their health. We're leaving them behind um, in terms of getting the health care. And I think that's really going to come back to bite us in this country. And we're we're already seeing uh, that inequality is really ultimately going to drag us down. And, and we really need to support uh, that part of the economy. It's just good economics. Um, if we can get that workforce trained, doing things that are better for the planet and that they can really stimulate the economy, I think it's a, it's a good part of the a Green Deal that we should focus on.
1: Um, I was hoping we could go back to certification or organics because I have read some articles that sort of suggests that there's no really scientific consensus about organic versus GMO. And there's also no real consensus about, you know, mm-hmm. their environmental impacts uh, individually, because like with organics, you need to plant more and, you know, cause you don't have the same yield always. Yeah, exactly. Um, so why choose organic or why do you personally choose
2: organic? That's uh, a, it's a great point. I mean, I, I've actually never heard um, someone your age spit that back to me because <laughs> I feel like I'm always the one telling people that there's not a consensus on organics and climate change which exactly for the question you mentioned of yield and it really varies from product to product um, and some product types are better than others um, you know the inputs to production is another big one you know fertilizers if you over fertilize i going to have a lot of nit- nitrous oxide as we mentioned uh, but there's a lot of in- inputs to a co- big commercial organic production as well and so, yeah, there's just not a lot of clear scientific evidence on, on climate and organics. But there's a lot of other reasons to buy organics, particularly for health, for the safety of workers, just because you don't like pesticides overall, even though organics have their own organic pesticides. But um, I just think it's it's supporting farmers who are trying to do the right thing. And uh, I certainly there's like the list of, of products that you never want to buy, you know, that aren't organic. Um, and there's a list of products that you can buy that if they're not organic, it's fine. And also I wouldn't focus on that particular certification. Uh, you know, like as I mentioned at my farmer's market, I buy from the strawberries down at the local, like on the corner outside of town, they don't have a certification, but I know them and their strawberries are grown right there and they don't, you know, they're better than organic. So I don't think you should make all your decisions based on climate change, um, You know, I I think think about again. Your most value is what you can do in this world to make this world a better place, and your personal impact is is part of the story. You 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 want to do that to be true to yourself and to you know be a good model for the rest of the world and to kind of live in balance and harmony. Uh, But I think where you're going to make your real impact is what you do in this world through your work and through your impact and your peers and policy and and your influence in the world. And that's that's the thing that it's really important to think about.
0: What's the future of public transportation like? Because I feel like that is the future.
2: Well, you know, um, a better word for public transportation is mass transit. Uh, And the reason is because it really requires a mass of population to be effective. So public transit is really good in urban core settings where you have that high density. And, yeah, if you live in an urban core, you don't need a car. That's a wonderful solution. But you don't want to, like, take these lessons from urban centers and try to apply them to the suburb where they're not as effective or just not effective at all. Um, In fact, they can have the the. Uh, the opposite uh, effect that you want—an unintended consequence—by extending the lines out into the suburbs of the transit system, you're encouraging sprawl. Uh, because you know, even for commute, it's less than like it's about 15% of total driving. I think it was 17% somewhere around there is is your your commute to work. So if you get, even if you could make people make them commute by public transit by extending those lines out, they're going to make them a lot easier to live out in those suburbs where 80 percent of their driving actually takes place and the distances are much longer and then they still need a car. So I think public transit has a role. It's an important solution for dense urban areas. However, 50% of the population lives in suburbs. Another 20% lives in rural areas. And so for 70% of the population, it really uh, is not effective uh, for the most part unless you can find some alternatives that you might call public transportation like having e-scooters and you know shared mobility micro mobility options and you know you certainly don't want to call Uber and Lyft public transit um they're mobility options shared mobility but they're just in, in, they're actually increasing mobility they're increasing vehicular mobility so you know making those electric and re- clean renewable would be important Um, You just really have to, um, here's I think the most important lesson of my work is that the solutions vary from one location to another and from one household uh, or household type to another, that some solutions are really great for some cities and really not good solutions for other cities and other locations or for other household types. And so it's really important to understand kind of what the biggest opportunities are as individuals, as organizations and businesses, as communities and to get good information and good ways to motivate people to understand and to take those actions that are going to be most effective
1: so what can the average person who's isolated at home right now because of the, the pandemic what can they do regarding the climate
2: well you know just by staying at home they're they're already probably doing it um you know they're they're not traveling a lot um, they're I mean, I think it's important to support your uh, your community who may be suffering. Um, so, you know, get the takeout from your restaurants, um, support those restaurants that are trying to stay in business. Uh, use your extra income from not traveling to, uh, you know, support musicians uh, having an online concert or to find take your check that you're going to get from the coronavirus and donate it to a coronavirus victims uh, organization, for example, channel it to somebody who really needs it or just take it and give it, you know, spend it on some service that is supporting a struggling industry, I think would be a really good way. You know, I personally um, have been spending a lot of time in my garden and I'm growing vegetables. (laughs) I never thought I'd be growing vegetables. I never thought I'd have time to grow vegetables or really the motivation. And now I've got this huge vegetable garden. Um, and those are pretty much zero carbon, right? Um, you know, they're just water and my energy. So uh, water has a little bit of emissions, but really you start to think about how you can make an impact in the world to make the world a better place, you know, we, who knows what's going to happen after this, but hopefully we'll think about ways that we can make the world a better place. And that could mean any number of things, it depends on each individual. and and what their capacity and interests and motivations and talents and opportunities are.